He's wild. He's sweet. He'll shred your couch on a whim. Then come crawling back to you, purring happily at your feet. His behavior may be erratic, but he's still the world's best cat, who deserves nothing less than world's best cat litter. The number one natural and sustainable litter brand with no harmful chemicals or silica dust. Trade your clay today. Get world's best cat litter for the world's best cat. This is the Average to Savage podcast with Paul Garino. Everyone and anyone, athletes, celebs, and much more. This episode is powered by Receptor Naturals. My name is Bas Rutten, and here are my top three reasons why I love Receptra. First, when I stopped taking prescription pain pills in 2008, I didn't have anything to replace them with until I discovered Receptra, which has helped me a lot. Second, if I have a long drive in front of me, I take it before I start driving. Why? Because it keeps my mind and my back muscles more relaxed, and that makes it easier for me to deal with idiots in traffic. Third, if I really want to push myself, I take it before a workout because it helps with less lactic acid buildup and that means I can push myself much harder. Those are my top three reasons. Godspeed. What's up, everybody? I'm back for another episode of the Average Savage Podcast. Our special guest today is entrepreneur Johnny Bird III, a.k.a. JB. JB, what's up? What's up, man? How you doing, Paul? Good, good, good. Let's just jump right into it. Could you give us a little brief background about yourself? I am an entrepreneur, as you mentioned. I own a business called Hashtag Do Mode, where we are a digital networking platform. So essentially what we do is we help people build relationships with each other and network with each other on a more intimate, more personable basis, mainly for introverts, but everybody is welcome. And uh, I host small Do Mode collectives where we have small networking relationship, purposeful relationship building type stuff um, happening. And uh, I also do some speaking engagements i'm also an author wrote a book called the toughest two out on amazon barnes and noble you can grab that it's about transitioning from adolescence to young adulthood using uh, my experience as a walk-on on on uconn basketball team and uh also attend uh yale grad school right now so i'm doing that on top of everything else and uh, also a host of another podcast called the famously average so uh you can check that out on itunes and uh, soundcloud so doing a lot of stuff right now yeah, definitely got a lot of stuff on the resume. Yeah. And uh, I know you're originally from North Carolina, so how did your family end up moving to Bridgeport, Connecticut? So my dad is originally from Bridgeport. Um, okay. And his, his mom, my grandmother, they're from Georgia. Uh, my mom is from North Carolina, so that's how I ended up in North Carolina. I'm from Fayetteville, North Carolina. I'm born on Fort Bragg, but lived in Fayetteville. So if anybody knows anything about Fayetteville, they know it's a small military town. Ain't much happening. Most people know Fayetteville because of J. Cole. Um, but um, other than that, you know, Fayetteville doesn't have much going on. But, uh, uh, yeah, I ended up in Bridgeport because, like I said, my dad's family was here. Uh, and my grandmother's moved here. So um, I eventually ended up in Bridgeport, Connecticut. It's always interesting to find out how people get to Connecticut, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of transplants here. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And uh, so what was the decision on going to UConn? Because I remember we did a blog interview a few years ago, and I remember you saying that you wanted to go to UNC. Yeah, so, you know, being from North Carolina, I think every kid aspirations is to go to either UNC or Duke. And if you uh, like either or, you can't like the other one. So I was a Tario fan. You would have seen my room when I was younger. It was just none but Tario stuff. Michael Jordan went there, all the greats, you know, Vince Carter, so on and so forth. 
So it's like, I got to go there, you feel me? Yeah. And yeah, so um, I wanted to go there, tried my hand in it, but I ended up going to high school in Bridgeport. So it made it that much harder because I wasn't in state. In North Carolina school system, they aim to keep people in state, so which is a, not a bad thing. That's a great thing, but you know that just lessened my odds. So uh, I ended up trying to, you know, put my hand in there, and it just the cars aligned for me to end up going to University of Connecticut, which is not something I had on my vision board, but that's where I ended up going. Yeah, for sure. Did you did you apply to UNC? I applied, got in, couldn't afford it because it was out of state, you know, and. Having a real talk with my mom was like, listen, try this UConn out for a little bit. I wasn't even going to apply to UConn. My guidance counselor, if it wasn't for him throwing that application in there, I used the same essay I used for my other schools that I wanted to go to. And I was like, you know what? Fine. You know, I'll do it as a safety because of you. But I wasn't really gearing up. I never visited my school, visited UConn several times. I never went. And it was really a late decision to go there, actually. I, I missed orientation. I missed all of that stuff because I wasn't planning on going there, which kind of put me behind the eight ball when I got there. Uh, yeah, it was a uh, taxing uh, decision process. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I feel like a lot of people, that happens with picking college to go to. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a big thing, especially when you're first generation and you're yeah. a family and no one really knows the ropes. So you're trying to figure this all out on the fly. And plus the kind of person I was, I was just thinking about basketball. I was really just thinking about sports and my friends. So like most teenage kids at the time. So it's not like I had the blueprint of what I needed to do. Even if I got to UNC, I probably would have not known what to do with it when I got there in the first place. So UConn, at the very least, was, you know, an hour, hour and a half away. So, you know, I could get back to some familiar faces, if anything. Yeah, I mean, I applied to eight schools, gone to three, so I didn't have many options, so I just, you know, picked <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> That's how it goes, man. UConn, UConn didn't let me in. <laughs> really? Yeah, no, nah, I didn't get into That's UConn. That's crazy. Not even the, what, what do you call it? The, the satellite campus. Yeah, yeah, not even those. Anyways, so then you, so what was your motivation behind, like, walking onto the basketball team? Uh, originally, I was playing baseball at UConn because, like I was saying earlier, I was motivated by sports. That's my identity. You know what I mean? When you're growing up playing sports, I played baseball and basketball. Probably a better baseball player than I was a basketball player, just the way I'm built. And, yeah, it was just like, you know, I want to do something. I can't stop doing what I've been doing my whole life. And uh, so I played baseball for a little bit at UConn. That didn't work out, probably because more me than anything, um, now that I can admit years later. And once that ended, I needed something. Uh, so I tried my hand in uh, basketball. I was playing basketball on the rec every night anyway. And I met a couple of people that were uh, managers on the team, and they suggested that I try out. I did. I made the first cut. Then I kind of got a preview of what life was like on UConn basketball team. And at first, I really, really didn't like it. It was not something that I was interested in participating in. And um, only because it was like I felt like it was it was pointless as a walk on. Like you go there and you just practice, practice, and used as dummies, basically, and rebounding machines. And just like, you know what, that's not for me. Um, so I ended up stopping. And But doing that really unbeknownst to me really just created a downward spiral of my freshman year because I had no connection to anything being plucked out of the inner city and going to UConn and if anybody of your listeners know anything about stores Connecticut (laughs) it's not exactly the most diverse place in the world so it's like damn what am I gonna do you know I'm I'm here I don't know anybody I can't relate to anybody none of my friends are here and I'm not playing sports 
So and not prepared for like the rigors of college coursework and stuff like that. So it was just bad news all the way around that freshman year. Yeah, I thought you were gonna say there's nothing to do there. Oh, there's uh, shit to do. (laughs) That's the problem. There's too much shit to get into. (laughs) And then so you got back on the team or then you you got back on the team, right? Yeah, so eventually after getting kicked out my freshman year because of academic probation two terms in a row, I muscled my way back into campus and then kind of turned a new leaf and or changed my attitude, I should say, in terms of what I wanted and um, walked back onto the team which was kind of a setback because of the way the walk-on system worked back then was that, you know, your first year, you know, you sit out. It's just the way it goes. So it's almost like a redshirt year. And, uh, yeah, so I had to restart my clock, so to speak. And But I kind of humbled myself and I got back on the wave and ended up sticking. Yeah, what was the whole experience like just playing under, like, Coach Calhoun and playing with all those great players you played with? At first, uh, while I was in it, I wasn't really, I wasn't too enamored with the place. Um, that's partly being from the inner city and just being that kind of, having that chip on your shoulder where you think you're better than everybody. So it's just like, or at least as good as these people. And so I am I went in with the mentality, like, these are my peers. These are people that I can compete with. Yeah. Though, you know, there's seven foot three, Deshaun to be or AJ Price, All American, or Kimber Walker, which we know was his success story and all that stuff. You know, it's like in my mind, I was just attacking each practice each day, like you know, I had the opportunity to get some burn. So um, I think my experience was a lot different than some of my my other walk on brothers because my mentality was that I wanted to play. So I was like aiming at people's heads when I was going on the court I was trying to you know score I was trying to pick pockets I was trying to do whatever I could to stand out yeah. and um not really realizing that the, the cards are kind of stacked against you because of politics and bureaucracy and all that stuff like you know when you walk on you're asking to be there but when you're a scholarship player they ask you to be there so that's just a different level of respect you get I mean I was kind of fighting an uphill battle but while I was in it you couldn't tell me nothing. Yeah, for sure. So after college, you was it was it right after college you wrote the book, The Toughest Two? No, nah, right after college, I ended up going back to school because I had that red shirt. You had another year of eligibility, so I just used that eligibility to um, grad assist slash play uh, another year to get my master's. And then it was like a question of whether or not I wanted to take my talents overseas, like some of my friends. You know, I've ventured off and talking to a couple of agents about it, but long story short, I ended up not doing that. Um, I didn't want to go overseas because some of the horror stories I was hearing about overseas, man, people think overseas is all tax-free money and this and that, but what people don't realize is you go overseas, if you're not playing in top-tier leagues, you're getting paid pennies, basically, and it's only for a few months out the year, which means you have to come back home and survive, and it's hard to just pick up jobs here and there or if you don't have a stable home system or whatever. So it's just like I didn't want to put myself through all that hassle, knowing that my abilities and me going to the NBA were nil, basically. So it was just like, you know, at some point you got to face reality and, you know, look at what the cards are that you got and try to play those instead of trying to, you know, finesse a hoop dream that's probably been done. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, probably not risking your life for a few dollars. (laughs) isn't smart. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) So what was your ultimate decision to write the book, The Toughest Two? After actually meeting a few 
few people that that I didn't know that didn't know me, but they they knew my story, so I uh, knew what what I did at UConn, and I was coaching an AAU team, and one of the dads on the AAU team actually was, you know, when you go play AAU, you got these long weekends, two day tournaments, so on and so forth, so you you spend time with the parents of the kids mm-hmm. in between games and stuff like that. And they're just getting to know me. I'm getting to know them. And they're realizing that, hey, you got a hell of a story on your hands, man, of what you went through and what it seems to be, like, where you at in your life right now. And I'm, and to me, I'm thinking that I have, a, you know, this is regular. Everybody goes through something. It's just a matter of what that something is. Yeah. And so I didn't think nothing of it. But um, I actually got pushed to write not the toughest two, but just to write this stuff down, which turned into the toughest two afterwards. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. What was the process like writing the book? <laughs> writing a book is no joke. I mean, especially if you're not a natural writer, and I don't believe myself to be a natural writer. But luckily for me, I was writing from my own experience, so it was a little easier in that sense because it's just recounting your experiences mm-hmm. versus trying to make some stuff up. Yeah. You know, it, it took a while. It took me like a year to like get everything down on paper and then edit it, and then, you know, I had a team of people to help edit it, put it in a way that's digestible and, you know, make it make sense, um, chronological order, stuff like that. So the process is daunting, and I advise anybody who wants to take on writing a book to really think about, you know, what they're trying to get out of it because it could be lucrative or it could just be therapeutic, but either way, it's still going to be a lot of work. And, like, what did you feel like, about like people actually reading it and it's like personal you know what i mean yeah i mean that's i'm not gonna lie that's being an introverted individual it's um it's hard enough to open up to people face to face and it's hard enough to open up to people that you know let alone open up to strangers through text who are left to their own devices on trying to judge on what you saying and what you did and maybe they can misread or how they interpret your context is up to them and you almost have no say in that so it was tough to open up to be honest with you and you know i had to come to grips with you know letting some of this stuff out and um some of the stuff is um embellished for story purposes you know for for Mm -hmm. flow so it's a technically it's a fictional book so it's not there's no like things in there that's going to hurts anybody else. <laughs> but it is kind of you know loosely based off of my experience like i was saying so i was drawing from my experience to help me write this story that can resonate with other people yeah definitely and what about like did other like walk-ons reach out to you when you released the book oh yeah my walk-on brothers were close to this day and yeah they reached out and i'm pretty sure all of them got it yeah is there like a i'm saying like for other schools there like a secret like walk-on group walk on community <laughs> yeah. uh, uh now that i know of i mean that could be I, that could I, be I would imagine there could be one now with you know yeah, instagram and facebook yeah. and stuff we should start a group yeah that could be something i think i'll lead that pack if they want <laughs> and uh and what, what was the year you started uh hashtag do mode hashtag do started around three years ago it was actually off the heels of the book we when the book came out surprisingly enough we got some good reviews and some people really liked it so it turned out that we had a little mini book tour i'm not the major just you know local and kind of on the east coast and it forced me to you know speak now public speaking is added to the resume and then um so now i'm speaking about the book and then after a while it was less about the book and more about my process of doing things and um 
people were asking me about how I, you know, sort of questions like you're asking, like, what was my process for putting a book together or how did I overcome these obstacles in life and so on and so forth. So it turned into me using the hashtag. It's early days of IG when hashtagging was like a real thing actually meant something. I used do mode as a hashtag to, it was really just a time capsule of my work. So I was using hashtag do mode as a way to keep all the photos of me just doing like kind of behind the scenes stuff. And then it turned into the business because people were looking at the hashtag and then they were referenced the hashtag and then they started using it themselves. And then it became a little small community of people just doing dope shit and chasing their passions. Yeah. I just want to say I still love Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, so tell me a little bit more about like what you're trying to accomplish, like and I know with the like the collectives and stuff like that with Do Mode. With Do Mode, the collectives they are purposely kept small and intimate. And like I said earlier, it's for introverts. I gear them towards introverts. Uh, introverted people tend to have a, a connotation uh, about them that is often viewed as negative because they are standoffish or maybe they don't like being around people. But it's not that. It's just that it's more about a level of comfortability than anything. And so the Dumo Collectives, uh, I found myself having to go to networking events when I was, you know, when you fresh out of school trying to find a job, you got to do what you got to do, go to job fairs, networking events, so on and so forth. And I would go to those things and they'd be massive, you know, it'd be 50, 100 people in a room. You got to bring business cards and you got to have the right attire and you got to speak properly and shake hands and, you know, kind of just fake your way through it. And with people that you probably won't ever talk to again. And for some people that works, but for people like me, it doesn't work. Yeah. Um, I, I just was one of those people that would go to these events and just be in a corner and I'd leave with the same amount of business cards I came with and they're all mine. <laughs> so <laughs> it was just an idea I had where I'm like, you know what, there should be a networking space for people like me who, if offered the opportunity, can talk about their business or their dreams, but in a more comfortable space. So I started these collectives about a year and a half ago, and I've been doing them every so often, and I'm becoming more consistent with them as of late. And uh, they've been a success each time I've done them. We've had about 15, 20 people in the room, and not everybody in the room are introverts for the most part. It's been introverted entrepreneurs and ambitious individuals who, you know, just want to connect locally and, you know, share stories, advice, experiences on how their journey is because I think, you know, we're in a time right now where a lot of people are jumping into this entrepreneurial pool. So it's a beautiful time, but it's also an oversaturated time. So people are experiencing a lot of things that other people are going through and why not share our experiences to help each other get to where we want to get to. Yeah, definitely. And back to the job uh, career fair thing, it's just like I've been trying to like tell people like instead of doing these bullshit interviews and acting all fake why not just do it like sports and half tryouts that's true like be like all right you're gonna work for free for a week we'll see what you can do like how is that not better than doing an interview that's interesting right there i've never thought of it like that yeah so that's a that's a uh in general i mean i've done that stuff sort of in the past like do free work and then it leads to something else and that's how stuff happens pretty much for I mean, most of the time usually i mean outside of interviews and stuff like that that's sure. That's how you get 
gigs and when you're doing entrepreneurial type stuff, people don't look at artists or videographers and stuff like that as entrepreneurs per se, but they are. And that's what they do. They offer up free work to build up their portfolio to ultimately get jobs later on. So, you know, that happens naturally with other professions. I just don't know why corporate America doesn't hopped on that wave because you can go to an interview all you want. Yeah. You can fake it for 45 minutes. And then they give you the job or nepotism happens where they give a job to their nephew or some shit like that. You know, that person's not right for the job. But, you know, if you give somebody who's built up a rapport through actually showing you what they could do, you know, that's a different. Yeah, definitely. And on the flip side of the entrepreneur thing, I was just talking to somebody else about it, how it's like now kids are growing up and they don't necessarily want to be like an athlete or a celebrity and they, they want to be like an entrepreneur. Like, what do you, what do you think about that? I think it's a beautiful thing. I think kids now are getting into a space where they're realizing there's more than just being an athlete or an entertainer. The world has been condensed because of our phone. So we're able to see more and know more and be more knowledgeable about what's the possibility. And more or less, that's what Mode is all about, is helping people realize that there's more out here to be had. And if you want to find your space, if you're good at knitting, then, you know, we shouldn't be putting you in classes where you just, you're doing accounting work. <laughs> like, we should be putting you in classes where you can exercise your talents and let you flourish and then help you, you know, the business stuff will come down the line, but at the very least, put you in spaces where you could thrive doing what you do best. Um, and I think we're, we're getting towards that. Yeah, and I think, like, there's a market for everything. And, like, like you just said, like, knitting, like, someone could go knit something, like, put a YouTube video on how they made it and make it like make the video dope. And then like their channel might blow up. They're making like crazy captions about like what they're sewing, like what they're making from sewing or something like that. For sure. And you mentioned at the beginning, you're a graduate student at Yale. So how did that all come about? And what's it been like going to Yale? Being a graduate student at Yale is, well, I'll just start on how I got there. I, was working at Yale, and I was able to uh, get ingratiated in the community by just being an employee. And then while being an employee, you get to kind of just be exposed to some of these dope people that are in the community. And it's like, dang, like if I could just be affiliated with these people outside of just being an employee, that'd be dope. So my mind shifted towards just being around them in the employee capacity to possibly being able to, you know, get into school. But it had never been a thought for me because I'm a very average individual, hence the name of my podcast, Famously Average. It's like, um, and your podcast too, (laughs) Average is Savage. But um, it's like, so I never thought that Yale or any Ivy League was a possibility for me. But now, being around these people and having conversations with them, it put me in a different mind frame. Like, you know what? These people are regular, too. I could at the very least shoot my shot and see what happens. And uh, I put my bid in. I put my application in. And I got in. And um, what it's like, it is very much so what you would think Yale is. It's very rigorous, uh, very time-consuming. I see why most people do this only. This is their full-time thing. They don't do anything else. They basically put life on pause while they're here. And where I'm not doing that, I have other things going on that are very um, near and dear to me, so I can't put them down. So it makes it that much harder. I'm in do mode, baby. This is what I do. So (laughs) I'm out here. Yeah, what's it what's it like being like a student again? Like, what's the perks of saying you're a student? Um, when you mention Yale, people's ears perk up a little bit. Yeah. Um, I've definitely met some people uh, who I wouldn't have otherwise met 
if I wasn't a student. And Yale is no secret. They are blessed to have the resources that most other institutions don't have. So I'm able to utilize those types of things. Like, for instance, one of my other classes last week, I was reading for a class and I was writing. We had to do this discussion writing for it. I got kind of charged up through the reading, which I don't normally do, but it was that intense of a reading that I got charged up. So I had a million questions that I was prepared to bring to class the next day. And um, lo and behold, when I got to class, the author of the book was in our class. And I was able to ask him these questions directly and have a conversation with him after class and pick his brain. So those are the types of things that uh, other institutions, you know, what other place you're going to go to where you are assigned reading and then the author of a very well-known book is in the class with you the next day, yeah. right there at your fingertips to be able to answer any and all questions that you have and wanting to speak with you afterwards, you know? So it's just stuff mm-hmm. like that that Yale has the ability to do and um, on top of being able to just meet, you know, some cool people. Yeah, definitely. Actually, I checked that podcast out yesterday, so I know exactly what you're talking about. And, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, even, like, people that live around here, like, I mean, even me, like, there's, like, a lot of free events that, and, like, big people go to Yale, and, like, people don't even really know about it, like, and they could just go. Yeah, I mean, Yale offers up so many things that people just don't have any idea about, and me too, I mean, me included, being in Bridgeport, I uh, wasn't far from, I was, like, 20, 25 minutes away yeah. from Yale, and never really visited it, and until I started working there, and then um, once I worked there, I kind of got the leg up on being able to know what was available because you know you get emails and stuff like that and then i really took advantage by going out and actually uh, meeting people um which is something that was foreign to me again being an introvert those are things that we tend not to do but we miss out on a lot of opportunities by not being able to jump out there and go meet people Um, hence why do mode the company is so needed because it allows people to not have to go out there and jump in front of somebody's face, yeah. but instead the resources kind of get brought to you in a digital fashion. So um, I'm able to let you know if by my experiences what's happening here and therefore you now know about it and, you know, your listeners know about it now and so on and so forth. So this this new age of uh, sharing information has perks. I mean, it has yeah. some, uh, some cons to it too, but... You know, for the most part, it has its perks if you, you know, sift through the bullshit. Yeah, yeah definitely. And uh, why did you create the Famously Average podcast? And also, why didn't you name it Hashtag Dumo Podcast? <laughs> oh, the Famously Average podcast came about um, two years ago with my buddy, JR, who was in uh, real estate investments. And, you know, he was just talking about it got to a point where we were on the same wavelength about leveling up in life. I think at the core of everything, what do mode is about, it's about people trying to level up in some capacity. It's not just about introverts. It's not just about entrepreneurs, but it's about people trying to do more with what they're given. And so it's like he was talking about, he wanted to leave his job and go into real estate. I was talking about that. I wanted to create a business that inspired people to do what they wanted to do in terms of their passions and career moves. And we were like, yo, and we had these, we were having conversations like this yeah. often, you know? So it was like, you know, we got to start recording this stuff. And um, that turned into the podcast. We just did it one day. 
And um, the famously average, the name came from us, really just got pulled out the sky. Um, it wasn't anything um, premeditated. It was kind of just something that came organically. Uh, you know, we're two average individuals trying to live famously, man, trying to get it the best way we know how and share our experiences. The reason why I didn't call it Hashtag Dumo Podcast is because originally I didn't want it to be affiliated with Hashtag Dumo. I wanted it to be a free space to talk about whatever. Yeah. And Hashtag Dumont is, though it is very diverse in the networking aspects and uh, career fields, it's not really a space where we talk about like contemporary topics and stuff like that, where the podcast allows for that outlet. So we talk about modern stuff. We don't just talk about entrepreneur type stuff. We talk about, you know, current topics. We talk about life at Yale. We talk about real estate and how it's going for him and in a slow time, like a winter time and his trials and tribulations as a new um, real estate um, investor. And um, we get people on there that have their real life experiences. And, you know, we sometimes we just shoot the shit too. We just, you know, we bullshit. We we curse. We we laugh. We got joke, but uh, we try to wrap it around some um, um, some advice to give our listeners to take home every week and be able to help them motivate and get through their week. Yeah, definitely. And and I know you're still trying to figure out how uh, strippers pay their taxes. Yeah, that's one <laughs> of the things I'm really interested in is tax season right now. And we talked about uh, the stripper bowl when it was the Super Bowl down in Atlanta and how the strippers in one particular club made $3 million and they split it amongst each other, which gave them $120,000 each. And I'm like... What did they file that under in their taxes? Did they just, <laughs> they just chill for the rest of the year now? Now they could. That was our, <laughs> our debate on our podcast. It was like whether or not these people just chill or do they go back and hustle more? Because it's just tax-free dollars. Is Are they able to just account for some of it? You know, I'm sure that a lot of that type of stuff goes on. So yeah. we're looking for a tax accountant that, you know, who's savvy enough to know about those things. And um, we look at it more like a waitress or, you know, a barber or anybody who works in the beauty um, side of things where it's like you get a cash business and uh, how much of that do you really report? And um, so that's interesting. Yeah, people are definitely obviously doing that stuff. But uh, I actually heard that only 3% of people get audited and 6% of people get audited when they refile their taxes. I'll say that one more time. 3% <clears throat> so, of people get audited and 6% get audited when they, when uh, they refile. Yeah. What's a refile? Like, so if you go in the past years, like, say, so it's 2019. So if you did, like, a 2017 one now, like, if you redid it, like, you messed uh, up or you wanted to redo it or whatever. Got you, got you, got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the, the, the moral of the story is don't refile? No, I'm just saying your, your chances are slim. <laughs> oh. Uh, all right. Well, so, so, so. yeah, those are the things I don't know. So I, those are the type of things that we talk about on the Famously Average where we, we do deep dives on shit like that. Yeah. So that could be considered do mode type stuff, I guess, if, you know, <laughs> one way to look at it. But we just chalk that up to us being Famously Average, just trying to figure some shit out. Yeah, definitely. Are you ready for some fun questions? Hit me. All right. I know it's kind of early, but who do you think is going to be in the Final Four? Oh. Uh, um, what well, depends if Duke has Zion. If they don't, I believe they're out. I'm liking the way LSU is playing right now. Um, not to mention they have somebody from Connecticut on 18, which is also mm-hmm. awesome. So I'm thinking LSU, Duke maybe. I want to say UNC just because. And I'll go with, I'll throw in, oh, that's three ACC teams. I don't know. I was going to say Virginia, but 
It would be three ACC teams. I'd say Virginia. Who cares? No rules against this shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, obviously, we don't know what the brackets are looking like. Right. All right. Well, who? All right. Who would be the fifth team then if Duke doesn't get it? I mean, if Duke doesn't have Zion, then who are you picking for um, like the, the, alter, the alternate? Scary. Tennessee. Um, I think oh, yeah. Tennessee has a bunch of ballers on that team, man. So I'll say Tennessee. All right, we'll go with that. What about top three jerseys that you want that you don't have? I want a home Charlotte Hornets Larry Johnson jersey with the pinstripes. I want a I want an old Vancouver Grizzlies jersey, and I want a Mike Vick no a Deion Sanders throwback Atlanta Hawks jersey. I'm Atlanta uh, Falcons jersey, not Hawks. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Well, yeah. that'd be interesting if you want to you customize a Hawks jersey into Deion Sanders jersey. <laughs> I could do that. That'd be a wave too. <laughs> And uh, what about last one? What what is, what is something people don't know about you? I mean, I know we pretty much talked about a lot of things, but what people don't know about me? Um, do you have a special hobby that nobody knows about? <laughs> <laughs> I like to knit on my free time. Nah, um, I don't have special. I mean, I do. My life is pretty much surrounded around do mode, but. Contrary to popular belief, I don't like speaking that much. I get drained. <laughs> it kind of zaps the energy out of me. So after podcasts or after stuff like this, I tend to be kind of quiet and reserved when I'm alone or, you know, just with friends and stuff. So um, that may be one thing that people tend not to realize about me after, you know, hearing me. Gotcha. And where can people find you on uh, social media? On Instagram, I'm uh, triple up underscore jb make sure you spell triple right i've had a lot of people not knowing how to spell triple (laughs) so it's triple up underscore jb on instagram my podcast page is at the underscore famously average on ig and we have live uh, whole episodes on youtube too so you can watch our podcast if you prefer watching it um and we're on SoundCloud and iTunes. And you can check out hashtag do mode. Our website is at hashtag do We got uh, videos and articles up there to help motivate and inspire. Uh, we also have a shop if you care to purchase some do mode gear. And uh, yeah, Facebook and all that stuff for the same stuff. So people know how to find you nowadays if they really want to get to you. So all of that stuff, we're on it. Yeah, for sure. And I uh, appreciate you coming on. Appreciate you having me, man. For sure. This episode was powered by Receptor Naturals. My name is Bas Rutten and here are my top three reasons why I love Receptra. First, when I stopped taking prescription pain pills in 2008, I didn't have anything to replace them with until I discovered Receptra, which has helped me a lot. Second, if I have a long drive in front of me, I take it before I start driving. Why? Because it keeps my mind and my back muscles more relaxed and that makes it easier for me to deal with idiots in traffic. Third, if I really want to push myself, I take it before a workout because it helps with less lactic acid buildup and that means I can push myself much harder. Those are my top three reasons. Godspeed. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.